Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Humanly Podcast. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Catalaris. Dr. Catalaris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Daniel. Dr. Catalaris, um, many of the uh, practitioners or listeners today, some may be familiar with your work, some may not be, but for anyone who hasn't... um, or isn't familiar with your work, do you just want to give a quick little background about uh, your history and, and what you do? Okay, well, I'm currently, well, currently, I'm 66 years of age and I'm living on beautiful rural acres in the Hunter Valley where we're striving for real sustainability. Uh, I graduated from Sydney University in 1982 with an MBBS, the BS being quite telling for the way things are worked out. And 10 years later, I was awarded a uh, MD or a doctorate in medicine in immunopathology. I spent 20 years um, in different, uh, usually public-based hospital uh, forensic pathology and research were my main areas. But my main endeavours in life really was since 1988 to campaign for the reintroduction of uh, cannabis, firstly as industrial hemp, for the production of fibre, next uh, seed for the production of hemp food, and thirdly for medical and recreational purpose. Now, we've achieved two of those goals and half of the next one, uh, which I consider very important um, processes, and we can talk about that at another time. The industrial potential for hemp is enormous, but it's off topic for now. Uh, In the last, I mean, I suppose the last 15 years, uh, I've endeavoured to develop the use of high CBD or CBD THC blends for the control of intractable epilepsy. And now that's well established both here and here and elsewhere. So I'm happy with that. Unfortunately, in the last three years, I have been dragged into the issue uh, with DCJ, Department of uh, So-Called Justice and Community or Communities and Justice, uh, where I found myself under criminal sanction for breaching section 105 of the children and young persons care and protection act um this is a draconian piece of legislation that was made some years ago myself and co-defendant paul burton are the only ones uh, the first ones to be charged under this legislation but since then people have been charged in jail and currently serving uh it's a blanket ban on mentioning the names of any children that have been taken by the department until they reach the age of 25 or die. Um, It's it's a bizarre piece of legislation. We have defended ourselves by instituting a constitutional challenge uh, against this because it seriously impugns the right of political free speech. And the lessons we're learning in the courts now may serve us in good stead um, in coming battles over the COVID mania that, that we're in at the moment. Um, our constitutional challenge was heard by the Supreme Court about four weeks ago, and we're expecting some sort of decision in the next, whenever, uh, four to six weeks. So that's that. Um, but the main topic today, as I understand it, is the current uh, crisis, <laughs> global crisis, 
um, and what my opinion of how it how it uh, actually all evolved. I have particular view of how things are, and in each and every instance, I've seen credible supporting evidence. So, when people say, "What do you believe?" I only I start with an assumption, and then try and make that assumption into a provable fact. These are things that have been published um, in mainstream media over the years, what I'm, I'm about to say and what's informed my opinion. But distressingly more and more frequently, you go back over the historical record, it's either not there or modified. So that, that by itself is, is uh, you know, uh, the Orwellian spectre is sort of stalking us every day uh, now, if anyone is still awake to, to those sort of analogies. Um, it's clear that in 2014, gain of function, viral research, gain of function, viral research was done at Fort Detrick in the United States. The process was developed by a man called Ralph Barrick, B-A-R-I-C, and there was a leak from the Fort Detrick compound from what was reported, and several people sickened and some of them evidently died. So the Obama administration closed down gain of function research which is probably one of the few things that was <laughs> properly done by an American administration. Um, Mr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, in 2017, purloined an amount of funds. Uh, the original amount I heard was 7 million US, although he says it was only 3.5 million, but I don't see that it actually changes things one little bit. And a man by the name of Mr. Peter Daszak, D-A-S-Z-A-K, who's the chairman of a group called the EcoHealth Alliance. Now, the EcoHealth Alliance is probably one of the greatest misnomers in history. This is a partially military-funded uh, operation that seems to operate as a bagman with Fauci and Gates. But uh, we'll just leave it. The EcoHealth Alliance, helped by Mr Peter Daszak, he funneled the money to the Wuhan Virus Laboratory in this Xi Jinping. What I have no information about or knowledge of is whether the Chinese government was or wasn't knowledgeable of what was going on. But what we can work out that Mr. Barrick taught Ms. Li how to do gain of function research and paid her to collect and catalogue corona bat viruses from the nearby caves. Now, after that, things become somewhat conjectural because there's a number of divergent ways of looking at it. The very early reports from China which um, they, they claim that the virus, in fact, one of the, this is going back, there was only one or two reports of this, were actually spread by American military personnel at the Wuhan Military Games, which is held in October of 2018. And they said the virus started circulating from there. Um, the Americans reinvented history later and said it came from the Wuhan wet markets and everyone, or some people, I suppose, may recall that they were trying to blame the pangolins for spreading this virus, even though no one knew what a pangolin was. Um, what is where it gets serious is where you start looking at the makeup of this particular virus, right? There is some, I suppose, I wouldn't say controversy because there has to be two sides to an argument to have controversy, but there's an attempt at cover-up to say that this virus is a normal zoonotic transfer from animal to human. And to resolve the issue, the Lancet magazine, 
appointed Mr. Peter Daszak. And listen, uh, listeners, I am not making this up. Mr. Peter Daszak, the bag man that took the money from Fauci to Wuhan, has been appointed to chair the committee to decide whether the virus is a naturally acquired virus or a laboratory creation. Now, you really couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. I wonder what he's going to decide. The biology of the COVID virus, in my opinion, and the opinion of people with much, much deeper scientific knowledge than me, I mean, I'm not claiming to originate any of this. It's been a big learning experience for me. Some of the genetics and the molecular chemistry um, I've actually taken my eye off the ball for a little while on those topics and I've had to sort of come up to speed to understand uh, the issues that those people that are immersed in the industries have been good enough to actually publish so that we can use that information um, to form credible opinions. Now, now this, is, this is, there are so many indicators that this virus is man-made. I, th I think it's beyond uh, contention but what I will be proposing today is that it's not only obviously man-made, but it's made with at least four levels of uh, biochemical and genetic manipulation to render it pathological. So that means it's smeared with the inescapable um, presence of malice. This is not just another hula hoop or, or a, you know, a McDonald's hamburger, which may kill you in 30 or 40 years. This is what I consider a genetic assault on four generations of humanity. And I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that. Let me just go into some of the details. The reason why, do, Daniel, do, do, do you want to hear a bit more of the sort of the, the physiology of it and, and the, the background? Yeah, absolutely. That would be fantastic. Please. To, to re in the broad, the broad sweep, I have been calling the allopathic medical system pharmacofascism for a long time because that's the way I've seen it. They've basically weaponized, weaponized health in many ways as an instrument of control. Now, people are probably familiar with the ACE inhibitors, which were a class of uh, blood pressure control medication introduced some decade or so ago. But from what I now appreciate is that the biochemical and physiological understanding of the ACE system that they must have acquired while they were doing that has now been put to use to sabotage human health. The coronavirus that caused so much um, disruption to our placidity and our, our way of life distinguishes itself from every other coronavirus known by having not one, but two uh, receptors. And I mean, I'll, I'll just say it for the people who are not quite aware, the coronavirus is called a corona because the spike proteins that uh, project from its surface somewhat resembles a corona of the sun. That's why it's coronavirus. But these spike proteins um, are instrumental in giving a virus its ability to infect. For instance, the influenza has hemagglutinin and, and neuronimidase, and depending on their combination, they can either be more or less infective and they change randomly. But this one, it has a spike protein 
which binds to the human ACE2 receptor. And well, I'll put that in perspective in a minute. But not only does it have that, which by itself, and remember, no other coronavirus has anything like it, but right next to it, they have what they call a furin cleavage site, which greatly facilitates the entries of things into cells at the right physiological distance. Right now, I'd equate that the probability of those sort of things happening to shaking up a big bag of bolts and expecting to get a car out of it or something like that is just beggars probability that those things can occur. Right, it's um, it's got the fingerprints of genetic manipulation, but there's much, much more to it than that. Now, why is it important? Uh, so, why why is this? Uh, happened. No, I'll rephrase that. The reason why this COVID virus does cause serious disease, and there's no doubt that it does cause serious disease in susceptible people and especially nutritionally compromised people. And I mean, we all know now the role of vitamin D. I don't have to go through it with an audience like you've got. If you're in the top, top deciles of vitamin D, your chances of getting any sort of viral infection are greatly reduced. Mm. And if you're vitamin and zinc levels are at saturation, you know, you're not really represented. It's a, it's a different group. It's a metabolically challenged, all the rest of it. And what seemingly healthy young person can also be metabolically challenged. They can have borderline levels of ascorbic acid, which goes into sort of acute deficiency under stress. So it's a complicated topic. Also, their immune system, the regulation with the endocannabinoid system. I mean, our human physiology is enormously complicated, but We'll just talk about the ACE system, right? Really briefly, human blood pressure is controlled by renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. The kidneys, in response to reduced renal blood flow because of low volume or low pressure, secrete renin, which is an enzyme which works on this precursor out of the liver called angiotensinogen. And that's cleaved to angiotensin by the renin and then by the ACE1 in the lungs to angiotensin 2. Now, just as you'd expect from its language, angiotensin puts up the blood pressure and revs up inflammation. And that's required at times when um, the body's under threat or it's uh, in a, a shock state or a low blood pressure. But to balance it, there's the ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2, which acts on angiotensin to cleave it into molecules which have an opposite effect. So it's basically the off switch of the renin-angiotensin system, right? And the humans, like in every physiological thing, we operate in dynamic balance, okay? Now, this COVID virus has been engineered to bind onto the ACE2 receptor. Now, the problem is the ACE2 receptor is widely distributed throughout the body, right? It occurs... Um, you know, in most of the important organs in, in various concentrations. So it's uh, having a virus with multiple binding sites by itself is a worry, right? Remember, it's got this additional cleavage site to facilitate it. Now, as far as I understand it, when the virus was first released, it was much more pathogenic. So the people in Wuhan got quite sick. And possibly as it's passage through different people, it's become more and more attenuated in some of its constructions. The gain of function may have fallen away, but people were quite sick in Wuhan back in March of 19, and most people aren't aware. You know, I had the good fortune to be in contact with a Canadian-Chinese orthomolecular doctor 
who was liaising and advising the doctors in Wuhan. And uh, the Chinese government, uh, they, they approached the Chinese government and indicated what they thought was the most appropriate therapy. And the government gave them patients, said, see what you can do with these. Ten patients, I think 80% were resolved in 48 hours. And the Chinese government then airlifted 50 tonnes of vitamin C from their factory in Holland and dosed everyone up as a front line. So in, in the hospitals in Wuhan, instead of here, you get a bloody uh, chemically coated bloody, uh, cotton bud up your nose if you so much as sneeze. Any sign of fever, any sign of sickness was first dosed with substantial amounts of vitamin C. And basically they snuffed the infection out. And two months later, there was no restrictions on their movement. Right? People too have to be aware in this country and in a, in a chilling number of other countries, and because we're in a news blackout, I mean, I don't really know what's going on in other countries. You know, it's really hard to get accurate data. I mean, this is, in any war, the first casualty is, is truth. And, uh, you know, we're suffering that terribly. And in fact, we're suffering under the impetus of their little trio of uh, fear, uncertainty and doubt. And now I think the issues are dominated by the, the hysteria approaching mania of the majority of the population. Anyway, that's just a little, little aside. I'll just give you a reason. <laughs> yes, or, yes. The way I do it, it gets worse. I mean, <laughs> you know, just when you think you're at the bottom of the hole, uh, you learn something more. And um, I'm going to share these with you now. Yes, please. So, summarize what I think about the virus. It was real. It was clearly created. It was funded by Fauci. Uh, I understand he owns a large ch chunk of the shares in Moderna, right? So literally the people who made the virus are making the vaccine. Now, if that's not a case of the fox minding the pigeons, I don't know what is. But anyway, that, that's um, on we go. The pathology of the virus appears related to the action of the spike protein, right? Just, just bear that in mind. Now, researchers have done this. They've isolated spike protein and they've infused it into test animals and they found they can reproduce all the signs of COVID infection without any virus present. So they now label the spike protein a toxic protein, right? Because it is responsible for all the symptoms, the neurological, you know, anything you can get with COVID you can get with the spike protein. Now, now look, look, look what they've done. They're now injecting a distressingly large number of people across a frightening age range, right? I mean, I, <laughs> you know, when they mention children and pregnant women, my blood goes cold and the anger levels build to sort of stratospheric levels, but um, they're, they're pushing on. Um, Hang on, just let me gather my thoughts. I'm going to get a bit emotional. No, I do okay. that. That's okay. That's all right. It, <laughs> I, I feel your frustration. Um, and, you know, there's, there's so much to this. There's just so many different levels. Um, and, and, and the critical part, Daniel, I've now asserted, you know, on experimental and very sound grounds, that you can reproduce all the nasty effects of the COVID infection by infusing spike protein. So what has Pfizer and Moderna done? They have got this messenger RNA to make the spike protein 
and they've encapsulated into a lipid nanoparticle, which we'll talk about in a minute. But they're basically priming our immune system to make spike protein, which has been clearly demonstrated to have a toxic effect on the body through its blockade of the ACE2 receptor and the interference with its function. Right? It, there's there's more to it than that, but that's that's the first part of the um, uh, what can I call it? It's a criminal act. It's uh, a sociopathic act. Right? The, these things. For what I'm going to be telling you next, these things can't possibly be done with good intent. Not possible. Okay, the lipid nanoparticles. Let's talk about them for a minute. These things are new to medicine. Right? There's been very little proper study done. The company claimed when you're injected intramuscularly with these lipid nanoparticles that they stayed at the site of injection and that they manufactured some spike protein and then your body was primed to make uh, antibodies and the next time you saw a COVID, it didn't mop it up and we didn't have to wear face nappies and we could go to the beach and children could play in parks. That's their basic thesis and their blackmail. But if the spike protein is toxic, getting the vaccine to make spike protein has to have the same effect. The only variables that I can see, and I, I didn't finish that train of thought, once in, when the studies were done, the injection can be traced and very little of it stays in the muscle. It scatters throughout the body and it goes to important places like the brain, the ovaries, the testes, things like this, liver. Um, spleen, it's, uh, you know, in many ways, the range of side effects in my way of looking at it, remember this is now getting conjectural um, because we're looking at future pathology, but the range of side effects will depend on the initial scatter from the injection. So say, for instance, a nurse is bored or she wants to go home or thinking of someone's boyfriend or something like that, and inject you subcutaneously, that likely it will disseminate much more quickly around the body. So it can be sort of more widely spread. But it's unknown that there must be a range also to, you can hit little blood vessels, whatever it is, there's a wide range in how the initial nanoparticles scatter. And as they scatter, where they settle through the microcirculation, you know, where they, where they lodge or where they start latching on to the ACE receptors, that's where you'll start getting immune activation. If that happens to be in your brain, right, you'll get some sort of mental clouding, you know, all sorts of side effects, nervous system the same. So you start to see why there's such a raft of various side effects, including the thrombosis that's really been now well established in the myocarditis that we're seeing in increasing amounts, right? Um, the that's the lipid nanoparticles. Okay, the, the messenger RNA that they put into it. It would be bad enough if the RNA was just viral RNA, but what they've done is modified it in two ways. When the spike protein binds to the ACE receptor, right? The the proteins, protein chemistry is really interesting because it's all about conformational change. So, for instance, you get a binding 
mediated by positive and negative charges on the different amino acids. And then because of that, there's a conformational change and the protein will flip from extracellular to intracellular, that, that's conformational change, right? So it sort of pops in. But what they've done, they've inserted two proline residues at a critical part. So the protein uh, doesn't fold and, and um, it stays rampant and stimulating an immune response, right? Uh, it's, they've done one other thing because that, that's to overexcite the immune system, but because the, uh, just let me get this right, the presence of RNA in the circulation is very inflammatory for the body. The immune system reacts to RNA because it's not meant to be in the general circulation. Those can be RNA from viruses. So it's very, very irritant. And it's rapidly removed by this special class of enzymes called RNases. What these satanic wizards in Pfizer and Moderna have done, they've substituted pseudouridine for uridine at critical parts of the protein string, and the RNases can no longer bind it. Right? So it keeps circulating the body, also increasing background inflammation. Right? Can you see it's... Uh, it's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. And, and there's more to it. Probably the most unsettling thing that is included in the spike protein is these things called glycine zipper motives. Now, these are new to me. I'm, I mean, I thank the scientists that, that are working in this area and sort of help because it's a critical thing to understand with, with this problem. A glycine zipper motif is basically an arrangement of the amino acids where you get a glycine, any three others and a glycine, and that's repeated. So if you get glycine three, glyce, glycine three, glyce, that's called the glycine zipper motif. And the longer it is, the more likely it is to function as a prion. Now, a prion you know, people are familiar with multicellular organisms like us and, you know, that. Then you have the bacteria, then you have the viruses, and then you have these prions. Now, prions aren't actually living creatures, but they can catalyse changes. They're proteins that can catalyse changes in tissue such that the normal structural proteins are misfolded. And um, they're, they're one of the... Um, well, they're the main driving force in Alzheimer's disease. We get these things called beta pleated sheets. And uh, for interest too, in Parkinson's disease, these prion proteins ascend from the gut, from that sort of whatever maldigestion is going in the gut via the vagus nerve and wreak their havoc in the uh, substantia nigra and cause Parkinson's disease. So they're not uh, theoretical entities. They're real proteins. They cause mad cow disease, for instance, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. In that case, the prion that causes that has 10 of these glycine zipper motives in a string. The longer the string, the more potent it is to be causing that. And that's the longest string that they know. They have inserted a string of five glycine zipper motives into the spike protein, right? So what they're doing is encoding a protein in the human body that amongst other problems, uh, you know, not the least of which is the blockade of the ACE2 receptors and sort of general up level of inflammation due to the sort of the unquenched RNA running around all over the place. 
but they've actually inserted the spike protein as into the spike protein's glycine zipper motive, which I mean it's it's a prion, right? Okay, it's not as bad as bovine sponge forming tephalopathy, but I mean even half as bad as BSE is very bad. Um, this is an act of malice of the most grotesque sort, as far as I'm concerned. Um, more science. It doesn't get any better, does it, Daniel? It's, it's actually hard to believe that these things are actually uh, being done to us, but done to us they are. Are you there? Yes, I'm still here. Yes. Sorry, it just went very quiet. Um, do you want to hear more, more of the disaster? Or is that, is that, uh, is that enough? Well, um, you know, it, it's really interesting I, because... I left the best to last. Right, the antibody dependent. Oh no, the autoimmune. Sorry, there's two more disasters before we leave off. The antibody dependent enhancement. Right, the, this this is a real issue. Now, there's two different sorts of antibodies. There's well, there's many sorts, but there's two as far as we're concerned here. The neutralizing antibodies, or those antibodies that eliminate the pathogen, and non-neutralizing antibodies. Now, they have targeted one single epitope one single um, antigenic stimulation site, whereas other scientists have found if you do only one, you don't get a, um, a proper balanced T-cell response, and it's much easier for it to break out as what we're seeing all the time now. But they have chosen just these one um, epitope to raise the antibodies to. Right, which leads repeat business. Well, we need the boosters for the Delta, and now we've got Mu and all the rest of it. But also because they've only chosen one epitope, it's much less likely to function as a neutralizing antibody and eliminate the pathogen, like activate complement, just you know, digest it basically. Right, so it can tag along. So you can end up with. Um, an antibody attached but not neutralizing and the body develops either an immune tolerance where it doesn't react or it facilitates the entry of the virus into the cell when the work was done on see doctors like farmers not doctors pharmaceutical experimenters real doctors i mean um have been experimenting with rna virus vaccination for a long time and you know, RSV, uh, respiratory syncytial virus, they tried to vaccinate against that some years ago. But the issue of antibody-dependent enhancement came up and children died and the whole process was abandoned. They've done the work in animals. Uh, there was a famous one reported in ferrets where they all survived the vaccination. Next year, they all died of the next cold that came along. That antibody-dependent enhancement is really serious because next year, as people start to sicken, from that, um, they'll say it's a third wave and they'll sort of rev up this and that. I mean, it's so obviously a strategy for police state transition. Um, they've prepared their sort of defences in depth. To make it worse is the issue of autoimmunity. Right? Now, within that same spike protein, and they've packed a lot of evil in this one protein, within that spike protein, there are at least six um, auto-antibody cross-reacting sites of very major clinical significance. For instance, within the spike protein, it can, uh, 
the body can raise cross-reacting antibodies to myelin basic protein, and that can result in an MS-like syndrome, or it can raise antibodies to thyroperoxidase, and that can, that can uh, cause Hashimoto's. So they have built six autoimmune diseases into their little spike protein, right? Um, the way I start to fathom, if you can fathom the sociopath's mind, is that um, what they wanted to do was have something that made people sick, but it actually looked like they were just getting other diseases. So we'll have a whole raft of autoimmune diseases. I'll shrug it off. I'm an MS as old, you know, hashies as common, they'll say. Um, yeah, it's, I haven't got a good, lot of good news to report, Daniel. No, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no. Uh, is any of that make that that all makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Um, but it's just really interesting that, and I appreciate you explaining all that in in such uh, good detail. But it, it's just very interesting to me that we're told on one hand it's safe and effective, but on the other hand, there's this information that it doesn't seem like a lot of uh, doctors are talking about. Listen, uh, the allopath have been trained and complete, their opinions have been completely corralled. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the case of Dr. Paul Osterhuis. I hope I've got his name right. He's a senior anaesthetist who put some cautionary tales about the COVID vaccination and made a number of completely credible and totally rational dietary recommendations to minimise your risk of having any problem. Um, a non two anonymous complaints has led him to appear in the medical council tribunal today to explain himself. Why are you telling your patients to have increased levels of vitamin D, not within the normal range, but at the top of the normal range? Why are you recommending zinc and vitamin C? You know, it's psychotic, right? The problem is too, as the allopaths have been less and less able to deliver good health, and I mean, let's not fool ourselves. The uh, general health of the population is now a shambles. I mean, you know, between uh, everyone clutching their sort of their asthma puffers and their antihypertensives and their anxiolytics and their antipsychotics and their thyroid support. Um, I mean, you, you knock off people's thyroids and there you've got return custom for life, right? Um, where now as a population, a bloody enslaved bunch of weakening people that have almost lost not only the will to resist, but the capacity to resist. Now, I do have some sympathy for people who've taken the injections of whichever stripe and are now suffering some sort of second thoughts regret, and uh, especially if they're looking at the VAERS data which, um, I mean, I used to quote to people, look, my experience with the adverse drug reporting system, the ADRAC system that used to operate here, is it only picks up about a tenth of the cases. And from my own experience when I was working in hospitals, you know, I was keen to report adverse drug, drug reactions. I wasn't against the idea, but it involved getting the right paperwork and it was quite onerous. And if you put it off, then you didn't have the notes. And with the best intention, you didn't do it, let alone if you didn't care. So the adverse events were about 10 times the reported amount. Now, according to the Oxford study group on one particular adverse event, I think it was shingles post-vaccination, 
the discrepancy was two orders of magnitude or 100 times more than the officially reported incidents. So we're dealing with fraud on us, fraud on steroids uh, across across the board. Um, yeah, what can I say, Daniel? I hope I don't, I'm not felt to be exaggerating, but I, I feel, if anything, I'm understating this. Um, I can't begin to imagine what it'd be like to go to work in a laboratory and work on implanting a prion in a vaccination. Right? I mean, that's like putting arsenic in the baby powder. Mm. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the even um, crazier thing to me about all of this is that the TGA's released a document, I think it was July 2021. So very recently, and they've basically said in black and white in the position statement that there is no safety data, long-term safety or efficacy data. There's no evidence to show that it's not going to cause cancer or possess genotoxicity or it's not safe in pregnancy. They don't have any of this data. So how can they then, on the other hand, say uh, to the population that it is safe and effective? I mean, how is how can they not report on the fact that there is no yeah, data listen, to I've, show this is safe and effective? Yeah, listen, what I've got to say about this is this. I'm a pacifist by nature, but if I got in a room with Skerritt, is running that I'll probably strangle him, right? He's held up the meaningful rollout of quality therapeutic cannabis at an affordable price across this country. But he's only one of the minions, right? Unfortunately, the powers that be have control of all the agencies. And I'll illustrate what I say with this example, which some people may already be aware of. It concerns hydroxychloroquine. I think a year or so ago, uh, Trump was still in because he'd mentioned hydroxychloroquine anyway. The Lancet, which claimed the mantle of being the world's most respected medical journal, right, published a major article concerning hydroxychloroquine. And despite the findings of the frontline doctors in America and, and a lot of other work, um, they claimed that it was not only ineffective, but it was toxic. Right? And this was a major article involving thousands of patients Three days after the publication of that article, the FDA banned hydroxychloroquine in America, even to the point that if a doctor wrote a script for it, the pharmacy wasn't to fill it. Right? That was their sort of stranglehold. A week later, there was a storm of academic protest from people in the epidemiological work, pharmacological work. They said, we don't even know these people. Who are they? How did they get through peer review? And then it was admitted that the article had been written by a PR company was entirely fraudulent and it was just quietly withdrawn. Right? The editors are still editing. Right? This is criminal fraud on a, on a mass scale. But what does that tell us? They own the Lancet. They own the FDA. I mean, the TGA is their puppy. Right? This is the problem. Of the, the agencies are their handmaidens. Right? I mean, you can't take anything the TGA takes seriously. They're just the price maintenance unit for, for a big farmer, basically. Keep out the good herbal stuff and peddle the toxic shit. Right? I mean, you, you look at the carry-on with cannabis. Oh, we don't know the safe, the safest therapeutically active substance in the universe, and they can't make up their mind, and the, the jury's still out. Right? And what's come in under the TGA's um, uh, watch this idea of emergency use authorization. I mean, they're just grossly, grossly distorting the way things should be. Uh, people are aware that in 2018, 
they changed the definition of pandemic. Right? Before 2018, it was a rapidly spreading infectious illness killing many people. But in 2018, they changed it to a rapidly spreading infectious illness. Right? They just dropped the killing many people. Mm. So they could have a basically a test demic. So you start PCR testing, right? The polymerized chain, and we'll talk about that because that's important. The polymerized chain reaction testing. Oh, we tested, oh, there's a thousand cases in, in southwestern Sydney. You mean there's a thousand PCR tests that are positive in southwest Sydney? How many of those people are sick? Right? That's the whole issue here. The whole pandemic is being run on the PCR tests. What's worse, in America, we've got more information than here, but I'm sure it's the same here. Doctors were either paid, bribed, threatened, or whatever else to include COVID on death certificates. So if you had a positive PCR test, even if you'd been renal failure for six months and died, you died of COVID, right? And they massively inflated the death figures. You aware of this? Yeah, I am. And there was actually an article in the Daily Mail about this uh, probably last week where they said that they have been reclassifying deaths. They've been um, labelling people as COVID deaths when they've died of heart disease and meningitis and other things. And um, that's falsely inflated the mortality figures uh, and it's scaring people. Um, the egregious example that I heard of. This fellow was listed as a COVID death. He was a young man and his mother jacked up. He'd been shot to death. I had nothing. They just put anyone on. You know, he was a gunshot victim and they put him down as a COVID death until she complained. You know, she said, that's just not true. But yeah, massively as inflated. But the PCR test itself, the PCR test was invented by a man, Curry Mullis. Um, he won the Nobel Prize for it. But as early as 2018 or 19, he went on the record big time saying that they're abusing the PCR test. It was never intended as a diagnostic test run at, at high cycle rates. And just very briefly, the PCR test uses genetic probes to locate a piece of genetic information of interest and then magnify it in a cyclic way. So the process... Um, goes through a series of incredibly complex technically, but each time it doubles the amount of DNA, right? So if you run a test, this, this was calculated by Malice, you run the test at 17 to 24 cycles, you have a reasonable chance of having very few false positive results. But if you run it at high repeat levels, the chances of false positive just goes up and up. Some of the labs were running them at 45 cycles. You know, almost guaranteeing false positive tests. Kari Mullis went on the record, like brutally um, criticizing Fauci for his lack of scientific knowledge and all sorts of things. And unfortunately, even though he's only 70 something and a fit and healthy man, he's said to have died of pneumonia, but it's, it's all very shrouded in mystery. But um, yeah, they do play for keeps out there. It's quite serious. Um, yeah. Dr. Catalaris, um when people hear about, because it's in the news every day about these cases we're seeing in places like New South Wales and uh, Victoria. So when we hear about, you know, another thousand cases today, are these people sick? Are they in ICU on ventilators or what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew, but on the, on the, the huge majority, it's just a positive PCR test. So it's an epidemic of the PCR. 
right? I mean, are our hospitals overwhelmed and overflowing? You know, not, not that I'm aware of. It just doesn't appear that way. And they're exacerbating the situation by grotesquely um, mistreating the patients. I mean, remember in the early days of COVID, everything revolved around the respirators and some company got a, an order for 300,000 respirators and then they realised the respirators were the very worst thing you could do to these people. <coughs> but, you know, just bear in mind that you can get symptom resolution in 48, 36 hours with high-dose intravenous vitamin C and zinc. And, you know, you add things like oral and, and the less serious people, hydroxychloroquine. Remember, that's an extraordinarily safe medicine. It's been in clinical use for 65, 70 years, and it's been used by millions and millions of people. Ivermectin, the same. I mean, the fellow that came up with the Mectin family of drugs, Avermectin, from which Ivermectin is just a sort of a slight modification, got the Nobel Prize. Uh, the drug is of such extraordinary benefit in Africa and things like that. Um, in Uttar Pradesh in India, they were using ivermectin and they had the, everything because you can use it prophylactically with zinc, right? Even, even hydroxychloroquine, you can take it two, three times a week with a bit of zinc. And it, it seems to work very well prophylactically or, or simply just keep yourself saturated at normal levels of C and zinc and all the rest, especially the D, um, and you're good to go. But in Uttar Pradesh, they, they had everything well under control. The WHO moved in and basically restricted ivermectin Right, and then they started treating their bloody sick patients with remdesivir, right, which is some toxic drug with no demonstrable benefit, and the death rate went up. And then they said, "Oh, look, it's getting bad in India." Right, they, these are people. Uh, I mean, you can call them jackals or reptile, reptilian, or whatever, but it it is almost impossible, if fact impossible, to escape the not even assumption the conclusion that there is a depopulation event uh, as their motive right i mean as well as uh, affecting probably the biggest financial theft from the middle class uh, and they're closing down all the small enterprises people are living off their savings they're losing their houses and they're all going to the large financial institutions this is probably the largest heist in history, in the history of the universe, right? It's money and your life. At least the Bush Rangers used to say money or your life. These bastards want your money and your life. And for a majority of people, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but from next year on, um, you know, between the antibody dependent enhancement, the autoimmunity, the reduction in general overall immunity, um, you know, we're going to see real bodies in bags rather than just positive PCR tests. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite concerning and um, <laughs> obvious. Understatement, mate. I mean, it is chilling. It, it, right? it really is. I can't see a good side to it, right? And now they're moving on the children, mate. I mean, uh, we have to think about what our moral obligation is and what our stature as human beings are if we watch watch them bad enough that they sort of got the youth behind these bloody face nappings and sort of corralled in their homes. So that sort of the rate of suicide and anxiety. Why is it that it's very apparent to many people about what's going on yet? Some people 
barring complete ignorance about this. And no matter what you say or what evidence you show them, um, they will never accept any sort of counter narrative information. It's a two word answer. It's cognitive dissonance, right? It is just too big an idea for their tiny little minds, cognitive dissonance where you're confronted with information so at odds with your preconceptions and all those suppositions that order your life and make you a comfortable human being, uh, you just can't accept. The government couldn't possibly be trying to kill me, right? It's cognitive dissonance. Um, I mean, look, the other thing too is I think it was Goebbels that said, if you're going to tell a lie, make sure it's a big one because it's easier to get away with. They practised with 9-11. Right. I don't know how many of your listeners still think that the planes collapse, the towers collapsed because of the aeroplanes. But I mean, there is incontrovertible physical and, and um, chemical energy that they were demolished using military grade thermate explosives previously set by a cousin of George Bush, who runs the Ace Elevator Company. And the planes were flown in just for window dressing, they're flown by remote control um, with people in them, I don't know, but certainly no Arab pilots. Um, you know, they got away with that. Oh, no, it didn't happen. People who hold credible sort of high-level professional jobs looked at a building 110 storeys high falling at free fall speed and said the aeroplane knocked it down. You know, you've got to suspend credibility. You've got to put aside all your, your bloody high school and university physics about conservation of momentum and, and acceleration right, to believe that, but they did because the idea of their government blowing up 3,000 of their people is too harsh for them to understand and that cognitive dissonance has just been reinforced. America, Britain, Australia, the fluoridated countries, I feel fluoride has a huge amount to do with it. Uh, the fluoride is a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a not only a universal poison which interrupts every known enzyme system in the body but in some way it diminishes the spirit i mean you can say pineal gland i don't know i've done i've done that well, hundreds hundreds of forensic postmortems and you know when they say everyone's pineal glands calcified it's either calcified or atrophied and i mean it's bizarre that a brain structure has just been so little looked at they're just content that most people's pineal glands are atrophied or calcified it is absolutely bizarre. But now, um, that's a fairly loquacious way of answering your question. Why are they holding on? Now, imagine too, there's some people, and remember, a lot of them are coerced. I'm dealing with a young man at the moment, 20, 20 something year old young man, loved his employment situation. And they basically said, if you don't get it, you'll, um, you'll lose your job. And against his parents' sort of suggestion and everything, uh, he went ahead. And in fact, we're now investigating for cardiac anomalies. Um, so a lot of people are being coerced. It's not as though they're willingly going. A lot of people say, well, it can't be that bad. And then I can do this and then I can do that. So it's operating at a number of different levels. Further, there's been a pretty sophisticated, pre-thought-out strategy for dealing with the others. They've turned the pack against the minority. You're putting us at risk. You're not part of the team, right? So they've created division. It's um, it's quite masterful in terms of a puppet show, but uh, on for one, I don't like having strings attached to me. 
they've really done a great job with all of this. Uh, you know, you really have to hand it to them. Um, it's a game well played. Um, and just sort of thinking towards the future for a moment, do you see any way out of this? And um, if you do, how do you think we get out of it? And what does the future look like for you? Right. Because I've spent the majority of my adult life working as an advocate and an active researcher in uh, industrial hemp, I'll, I'll explain a couple of scenarios, right? Like everything, it, it can stay the same, it can better, it can get worse, right? The, the get worse, I mean, we can end up as a completely, uh, basically the vaccinated will start to die and the sort of the 20, 30% of the uh, outliers will be under increasing pressure, cashless society, micro-tripping, microchipping nightmare, that whole dystopia thing, that, that's a real possibility um, if we don't watch ourselves and exert ourselves in a meaningful way. Things can just dribble on like they are. Or what's left of the thinking population, it probably won't happen this year because it's not bad, but when everyone starts to die in a year or so, the goats, see, I mean, just to use a real simple analogy, I say there's the sheep, the goats and the wolves. And uh, basically the wolves are preying on the sheep, but uh, the goats will get sort of active as, as things get tougher and um, turn on their oppressors, whether that's done peacefully. In some of the countries, I think it's one of the Scandinavian countries, a population surrounded the parliament for eight days, I think it was, and wouldn't let them out until they stopped the lockdowns and nothing happened. You know, they didn't all die. I mean, that's the sad thing. If they replace these bloody PCR testing birds with sort of vitamin C and zinc birds, you know, where you go and get fresh orange juice with ascorbic acid and zinc put in it, you know, that's the sort of world I'd want to live in. The way we can improve, let's say, I mean, let's say we can mobilise enough of the population to cause a change, whether it's at the polling, the polling stations or just by physical imposition and getting rid of the current crooks. I mean, Hazard, Chant, Berejiklian, these people are now criminals. They're not just Polly's doing a bad job or anything like that. These people are criminals and criminals severe. Um, I mean, they need to be in jail. Um, I would consider the death penalty for what's being done because you can't claim ignorance. I mean, anyone who claims to be running the country um, has to have a better level of insight than what they're saying. They think what they're doing is for the common good. So they become responsible for the deaths or the suicides and, and the rest of it. Anyway, that's that. On the positive note, I mean, let's say, okay, we'll put it another way. Let's say the hemp party is elected at the next election, right? The first thing we do, because I ran as a Senate candidate for the hemp party last federal election, we got 2.6% of the vote, which was just a little bit behind Clive Palmer's. We had nothing to spend. He had 60 million. So try and spend a bit this time and see if we can do a bit better. But basically the policies for these, I mean, let's say I was giving the orders here. First thing we do is remove cannabis in all its forms from the Drugs Musician Trafficking Act. Make no other changes to the Drugs Musician Trafficking Act. Simply remove cannabis, right? So there's no restrictions. That immediately and per year saves $2.5 billion, right? In police, courts, jails, a whole catastrophe, $2.5 billion across the country. We use that as seed capital to set up a paper mill, a cordage mill of all sorts, a geotextile mill, a hemp plastic mill, 
And for people who really want to be educated on this topic, we made a documentary back in 1995. It's now available on YouTube called Billion Dollar Crop. And in that documentary, which we made, they show Henry Ford with a car made out of hemp plastic. This is in 1941. And he's hammering this car with a sledgehammer and it's bouncing off. So basically they made a hemp plastic for an automobile that was, I think, one-sixth the weight of steel and 10 times its impact resistance, right? And that's just been buried. We would basically transform the world from a hydrocarbon nightmare. Because remember, everything really turned to shit with the hydrocarbons and moved back into a carbohydrate. So we'd have plastics of any sort all made from carbohydrates. We'd have paper of, you know, without any toxic dioxins. We'd have plastics that... Um, yeah, could be then rendered as liquid fuel. There's a whole thing. Once you get rid of all the toxic xenoestrogens and other sort of chemicals they put into their production, none of which is actually necessary, right? Next, we'd have a massive production of hemp seed and there'd be basically how they used to take warm milk around to the schools many years ago. There'd be hemp seed smoothies set up in the school. So the kids got at least one dose of a high omega food with high levels of vitamin B. And people really should look at the nutritional content of the hemp seed. Hemp seed combined either with vegetables or fruit and berries is pretty close to uh, a, you know, a great way to regain health quickly. So we'd develop population health. There'd be, instead of a GST, a good saving, a, 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 what is it, GST, what do they call that? A, um, what, what does it stand for? Goods and services tax. Goods and so we, 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 a, good, a good spending tax, right? So basically to be used as a carrot and stick. So fresh fruit and veggies that have no GST, things like Diet Pepsi, it'd have a very high GST. So it'd be an immediate price signal to adjust people's consumption, Right. There's, there's so many things that can be done. Um, you know, anyone, uh, there'd be massive tree planting and you could really transform the country, right? The next thing, there'd be massive inroads into the military. For instance, I live in the Hunter Valley and these bloody jocks in their F-35s now, they used to be the Hornets, now there's the F-35s flying overhead. These represent billions of dollars of Australian wealth being squandered to American at a... Um, aerospace companies, um, not to mention the environmental impact. So we channel basically most of the military. You keep, you keep enough for serious home defence, uh, reserve army and things like that, and Coast Guard, but channel most of it into earth repair. So that's, that's the rosy green side of things, but we're only going to get that if we actually stand up now because, um, you know, I, I go to the shops now and even as something as simple as going to a hardware has become a battle of having to deal with the face dappy fuckwits and their anxiety at seeing me without a, a face covering. Um, you know, I, I, I find it hard to deal with idiots, Daniel. And, you know, when I'm confronted by huge numbers of them, it's very distressing. It is very hard. And it takes a very strong person, a strong-willed person to stand by their convictions and, and not give in to any of those draconian... And, and <laughs> I don't agree, mate. And I don't agree. I, I mean, you are either got it or you haven't got it. I mean, mm. I'd no more comply than, you know, fly to the moon. It's just not in my nature. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not a consideration. Um, yeah. By the way, uh, I've already incurred my first $3,000 worth of fines 
So now using the legal skills we developed in our constitutional challenge for Section 105, um, as soon as, uh, uh, I mean, it's quite an interesting circumstance because I was actually at Kennard's hire place out mm. in an open yard and because I wasn't wearing a face nappy, the bloody manager ran out and took a photo of me in the car and sent it to the police. And two days later when I returned, he did the same thing. So without seeing me, just on the basis of a snitch, they sent him $3,000 worth of fines, which I've elected to attend court. And we'll start the process of constitutional challenge based on Article 5123A. Most people are probably not aware of that, but they should become aware. In 1948, Article 5123A was added by referendum. And it specifically and totally excluded any form of civil conscription. Right? And that includes forced medical procedures. So it is such an important part of our constitution and it's simply been trashed by the garbage in Macquarie Street, Buddy Andrews and all the other little wannabe psychopaths that have sort of seized this opportunity to bolster their standing. Yeah, it, it, I've, I've thought about this um, quite a lot and I think it's just going to take one or two key people to take these issues to court, take it all the way and set the precedence by winning, you know, a fairly high profile case in the court. And then that will open the floodgates for everybody else. Um, but it does seem it like depends, some of this, right. There are just, just today, today, um, I'm not sure who, who took the uh, New South Wales government. They've asked for a judicial review of the, the current restrictions. So we can hope that the courts can be used to actually uphold our constitution, but you can't be too confident that the courts are that good. In my experience, at least a significant minority of those in positions of power in the courts uh, and elsewhere, and this is a bit hard to say, but I mean, the evidence is just too clear to me and I've had too many individual personal cases that I've taken the history from eyeball to eyeball. So this isn't anecdotes or anything like this. It's people I've questioned, recordings I've listened to on too many occasions and many more than I know about because I only know what I know. Um, police and courts have facilitated uh, the access of children to known pedophiles. And in at least some of those cases, they've gone on to prosecute any whistleblowers. Right. This country has been going dark for a long time. They've managed to cover it with a lot of good PR, throw another snag on the barbie, whatever else they want to do, as an illusion of Anzacs and matehood and all the other bloody fabricated crud that takes the place of real backbone and quality in a country. Right, We're still going on about Gallipoli. I mean, give me a break. It's, uh, I don't see that, they, you know, that that's something that should be remembered. It should be actually regretted. But anyway, that's another matter. <laughs> Hang on, I, I got off on a rave then, Dan. You may have to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I mean, there's the, there's the, the, the country and the myth of the country. Mm. You know, how many big bronzed Aussies can you find now? More like fat, fuck with it, diabetics. That's right. You know, it, it, it's horrible. Um, I mean, I don't want to write off all of humanity. And one good thing about this crisis is people are starting to coalesce 
around people of their tribes, as the saying goes. Uh, and the only way really in the short term to do well is cooperate, mm. right? Form groups and cooperate. Um, that's what we're certainly doing. We're forming legal groups, child protection groups, um, little food production groups, all sorts of things, and just harden your existence so you can resist. Right? Even the most stout-hearted person might start to wilt after three days without food, right? Um, if they're trying to compel an activity. So, you know, you have to not put yourself in that position. And the only way to do that is by proper preparation. So a lot of my efforts at the moment, to tell you the truth, are really uh, designed around um, self-sufficiency so we can live uh, free of any coercion that they throw at us. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I know everyone can't do that, but everyone can do something, right? Um, you can grow things in pots. You can you can do all sorts of things. You just have to get creative or form cooperation with people that do somewhere else, you know? Um, but yeah, whether the reaction will happen, this, there was a lot of talk of a trucker's strike and I was really hoping that um, something big would happen, but uh, you know we've just got it's just, just disappeared. There's, uh, no one's talking about it. You know, there's a death of news. There's a yes. little little joke. You know, they they say, uh, oh, first they came for the journalists, and then we don't know what happened after that. Mm. You know, that's basically where we are at the moment. We don't know what is happening, right? Um, conflicting reports, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Remember, that's their mantra. That's the way they operate. And then any any little reward will um, will be taken up by the people. Well, uh, you know, you know, it's it's very easy for people to sort of dismiss everything um, that uh, is being discussed for you know just nonsense and whatever, but. That it's going. To, this is already happening. I mean, just look at the way society is now, and, and people still don't uh, want to accept what's going on. So I think you're right. We do have to look towards the future um, and how we can sort of future-proof ourselves a little bit. But you know, there are some positives to be taken out of this situation, and a few of those for me is that um, <clears throat> I've now connected with a lot of like-minded people. I realise who actually is on my side. Um, and who I can trust. And yeah. I've realized what the nature of reality is. And uh, now I know that I want to, what I want to focus on and how I want to live my life. Whereas before any of this happened, I was sort of just going about my day-to-day -day life, not really thinking very deeply yeah, about big, things. It's, yeah, it's a big price for that realization, isn't it? It is a big price. It is. Yeah. But no, that's what it is. I mean, to use that expression, it is what it is. Um, my grandmother, I mean, deceased now, she, she had a favourite saying in Greek, which basically means when you hit an obstacle, make it to your good. Mm. I, I feel that this is going to be a catalyst for change. And the goats and the sleepy sheep, as their financial system, the situation bites deeper and deeper, homelessness, dispossessions, the whole catastrophe, they will become an angry crowd. Mm. Right, and that angry crowd will take on the current regime. I won't call them a government because they're not a government. They're a regime at the moment. Um, they're a regime who appears to be accepting instructions from foreign corporations. So they're a traitorous regime at state and federal level. 
Um, I don't think we can describe them as anything else. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I'm just very surprised. Well, no, I'm not actually. <laughs> uh, it, it is it is a shame to see society going the way that it's going, but this has to happen for us to really appreciate what freedom's all about and to fight to get that freedom back. Um, so without this situation occurring, no one would be doing what they're doing now to try and overcome uh, the, the predicament that we're in. I think it'll arrest the downward slide of the goats and mm. make them into a useful force. Let's hope that. Yes. Right. Um, let's hope that. Dr. Catalaris, I know you've um, got to head off because uh, you've got other things to do this afternoon, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity if there's any last sort of points that you wanted to make before we wrap it up for today. Um, not really. I mean, other than a general appeal to everyone out there to look after your kids best you can, feed them the best possible diet and the highest sort of IRAC scores and all the rest of it. Um, don't, under any circumstances, resist. There is no inducement that is worth the potential complications of the injection. So stand firm and um, good luck. Dr. Catalaras, I really appreciate you coming on and speaking with me today and, and just being so open and, and honest um, with your perspectives of, of how everything is uh, in society at the moment. I, I do really appreciate and value your opinion. I'll pick up one last point, Daniel. I saw graffiti in the 1960s and they said something like, a society that's based on private ownership and profit motive isn't a society at all, but a state of conflict. And I hope we transit from a state of conflict to a real society. I do too. And I, I'm Good very word, hopeful. I, I have uh, a lot of, I uh, have a lot of hope and I do still have faith in humanity and um, time will tell what that outcome will be. I've got faith in 10% of humanity, Daniel. The rest of the <laughs> that's faith. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Good on Thank you. Stay well. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.